Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at the first great philosophical question that the world asks, who am I and where did I come from? You ever ask that question, where did you come from, where did I come from, who are you? <laughs> Those are important questions, you need to know the answer, they're vital. In fact, we're going to see that answering this question of who are you and where did you come from has an effect upon your present life and your future life. If you can't answer this question, you're going to have a messed up present life and a messed up future. <laughs> you're not going to have confidence, the hope, assurance of much of anything if you can't answer this question. Thousands and millions of people have asked these questions. Sadly, many don't know the answers. But we need to know these answers. We're going to look at them over the next couple weeks. Well, there's all kinds of myths and theories and ideas about who we are and where we came from. Let me give you some of them. Thousands of years ago, the Egyptians taught that we came from, uh, you'll see the picture here on the screen, but here's what they believed. They, they believed we came from this prime, primeval ocean. And upon this ocean, one day eventually an egg appeared. And from this egg there was born the sun god. And from that sun god, he had four children. And then, of course, typically with children, there's rivalries amongst children. And there was rivalry amongst the four god-born children. Eventually, from that rivalry, creation took place. You say, do people believe that? Well, I don't know if anybody still believes that, but the ancient Egyptians used to believe that. The Babylonians had a different view of creation and who they were and where they came from. The Babylonians believed that the human creation is, uh, you'll see it in the next picture. In fact, this is a, Babel, um, a picture of, from Babylon. But anyway, they believe that human creation is really the story of plot and a counterplot amongst the gods. The gods didn't always agree with one another. That's kind of typical amongst the polytheists. And so they had this idea, their, their stories of banquets and rivalry and war amongst the gods, and as a result of that, creation happened. That's where we came from. Well, the Greeks also believed in many gods. They taught about a mythical giant named Atlas. Heard of him? Atlas it was, there, it was this god. In fact, here's a, a statue of Atlas who, who would, uh, he'd, as he stood, he would hold the earth on his head and his shoulders and his arms. So, amongst those beliefs is the idea where we came from. Well, the Asians have a different idea. The Hindus thought the world rested on the back of three elephants. And those three elephants, in the next picture you'll see three elephants uh, standing on the back of a giant tortoise. And that giant tortoise swam around the cosmic sea. So you can see these various ideas around the world. They're not agreeing with one another, are they? So it's no wonder we have in our post-modern society that we live in where everything, there is no truth. It's all relative. Your ideas are just as good as everybody else's ideas. The only thing that is not tolerated is truth. 
And so we come today, and there's a lot of people don't believe any of these things. So what do people believe today? Well, there's basically three views that people have today to man's origin. The first one is atheistic evolution. I thought that picture was kind of funny. You've probably seen the various ideas of evolution where you, you know, from the the primeval ooze, you know, comes amoebas, and eventually stuff crawls up out of that. Eventually you get apes, and and eventually you, you come to a fat guy drinking his, his Coca-Cola. That's modern man, isn't it? And he sits there as a couch potato watching the TV. But uh, the, you say, well, what is this theory? This theory, by the way, notice I just called it a theory. Sadly, many... Many museums and books don't call it a theory. They talk as if it's fact, and it's not fact. But anyway, this theory teaches that man is basically the accidental and random product of uh, some blind and non-personal series of chemical and biological events. Well, there are people who believe that. But there's also another idea that's sadly even caught caught on amongst some Christians. It's called the theistic evolution, theistic coming from theism being, being the, the study of God. So they, they try to combine God and evolution together to appease. They, they, they basically sit on the fence and rip their pants in the process is what they do because they're trying to appease the evolutionist as well as the creationist. This theory teaches there's one God, but God chose to use the method, as you can see here, the method of evolution to bring about all the things that we see in, in the present existence. God started it, and then he just kind of left it to evolve. Well, praise God, there is a third view, and that's special creation. <laughs> the special creation, it's the view that man is a, you and I, when I say man, I'm just speaking generally, mankind, okay? You and I are a direct product from the very hand of God, and of course, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, according to this view, is, is to be taken literally and seriously. According to this view, God is the creator of the entire universe, including you and me. Genesis 1 and 2 are not a product of someone's imagination. They're not to be taken figuratively or allegorically. They're to be taken literally. When God says what he says here, he means it. After all, he was the only one there in the beginning, which, if you look at the very first verse, well, look what the very first verse says, because he's the one who was there. Genesis 1.1. If you don't believe Genesis 1.1, how can you believe anything in the Bible? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. That's where it starts. Of course, Hebrews said that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So as we come to this, and you say, well, I wasn't there to see it all. Well, I'll remind you, the evolutionists weren't there to see the Big Bang and whatever crawl up out of the primeval ooze either. They weren't there to see that. But they also have faith. Now, their faith is in something that's far lesser than my faith. My faith is in God. Their faith is in themselves and their theories. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. He was the one who was there. He's the one who wrote about it, and he's the one who reveals himself here. And so the book of Genesis is avoiding all these, these gross and ridiculous concepts that we just looked at, and it's giving us an accurate, sensible, reliable record of the origin of man and the universe. And so our view of the origins is very critical. 
very critical, very important, because as I said earlier, your view of the present and the future is, is bound up in the past. Your past has a great effect upon your present life right now, doesn't it? The origin of the universe and the origin of mankind has a great effect upon your future even as well. And we're going to, hopefully you can see that as we, as we look at this. But who is the creator? Who is the creator? Well, if you take this literally and at face value for what it says, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. Well, that's the English word. Most of us don't know Hebrew. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm not going to even try to talk like one. But the Hebrew word there for God, and God has many different names and titles in the Bible, but this particular one here is interesting. It's the word Elohim. Elohim. Elohim, the word Elohim there, or in the English translation God, is, is an important word. It teaches us three truths about God that I just want to point out to you, okay? Number one, what do we learn about God here from the Hebrew word Elohim? Number one, we learn that God is multiple. You say, where does that come from? Well, the word Elohim is plural. It's, it's, in the Hebrew, it's plural. In other words, God is saying, I am multiple. I am more than just one. It's a plural form. Now, in what sense is God multiple, you say? Okay, because some people say, oh, wait a minute, I thought God was one. The Bible says that, right? It does, in Deuteronomy. The Lord our God is one. That's true. So in what sense does it mean here that God is multiple? Well, let's think about two things for a moment. Okay, number one, he is Trinitarian in his essence. And by Trinitarian, you see the word Trinity or tri being three. He's three in his essence. There is a teaching in the Bible called the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the idea that God is one, yes, but he manifests himself in three persons. And we even see this truth coming out in, in Genesis 1 here. I'll point that out to you in a moment. But as you read through your Bible, yes, you see God is one, but he has three persons. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons in one God. There is one essence, though, that passes through each one of these persons of God. And they are without division. They are, they are totally united, and they are totally in fellowship with one another. But how else is God multiple? We, we see, well, first of all, he's Trinitarian in his essence, one God in three persons, but he's infinite in his attributes. He's infinite in his attributes. The word Elohim is not only plural... But it's also, it, it also it's the plurality of majesty. The plurality of majesty. He's not just majestic. He is, he is plural in his majesties. Every area of his life is majestic. So the word really is speaking of unlimited and unbounded greatness. For example, God's infinite in many ways. Okay, think about this. Uh, these are his... Uh, what theologians call the incommunicable attributes, the things that, that you and I can't catch, if you will. All right? you, know, you and I can catch diseases from one another. You know, we can pass on various colds or whatever to one another. Those are communicable. Okay? These are things you can't catch from God. Uh, but God is infinite in these ways. For example, he's, he's omnipotent, he, which is all-powerful. He is totally infinite in that. 
He's all-powerful. He's, om, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's immutable. He's incomprehensible, and he's eternal. He is infinite in all of those attributes that only he has. You and I don't have those. So what else does the word Elohim teach us? We see Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And so that's showing us that he is multiple, but it's also showing us that God is single. Number two, God is single. Because Elohim is not just a plural noun. Those of you who find English challenging, okay? A, a noun is usually the subject of the sentence. It's, a, it's usually like a person, place, thing, or idea. Okay, that's a noun. In this case... It's a person. God, Elohim, is the person here. He's, he's the noun. And, and, and Elohim is plural. It's not single. It's plural. It's a uniplural noun, if you will. What is that? It's a noun which is it's reflecting unity or oneness in that plurality. So there is unity, even though there's three persons mentioned here. Now, what does this mean for us, though? You say, okay, that's all interesting. You know, thanks for the Hebrew lesson, but, you know... Uh, how's that going to help me tomorrow? I know some people think that way. Well, it means that we, number one, we do not worship three gods. <laughs> you do not worship three gods. You worship one god. The Jews were monotheist. Well, at least they were supposed to be. Sadly, some of them rebelled against God and worshipped other things that weren't God. But anyway, that's another point. But we worship one God who exists in three persons. You say, I don't understand that. Well, guess what? Neither do I. All right? And if you understand it, that means you're probably God, which, of course, you're not. So you're, you, you can't understand it. That's my point. So when the Bible, the, the Bible here says God created, you look at the word created, the word God is plural, but the word created is singular. That's very interesting. So it's showing us that, that God is not just a multiple, but he's also single. This multiple God did one thing. He created. So it's taken the plural form, but, it, but with a singular verb, showing that God is also single. But number three, we also see here that God is powerful. In that word God or Elohim, you, you have the root El. El in Hebrew means the strong one. Names mean something in the Bible, okay? Let me encourage you, whenever you see God mention something about himself in a title or a name, if, if you don't have a study Bible, let me re recommend you get one. Often study Bibles tell you what those various names and titles of God mean. And if you don't know which study Bible to buy, well, I can help you out with that. But the, the word El, the root word in Elohim, means the strong one. That, that's who God is. He's the all-strong one, in fact. He's the omnipotent one. So he's multiple, he's single, and he's powerful. That's who God is. He's the creator. How did he create? How did God create? First of all, we see here that God created everything from nothing. You say, well, where does it say that? Well, again, you have to do a little bit of digging. God created everything from nothing. It, look, again, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. What does that word created mean? It's the Hebrew word bara. The Hebrew word bara means to create, to bring into being or cause to exist that which previously had no being or existence. 
So Genesis 1.1 just totally destroys theistic evolution. Theistic evolution that, you know, God, you know, God creates everything and he just uses evolution to let things go to the point they are now. Genesis 1.1 also, by the way, just destroys atheistic evolution. It destroys pantheism. It destroys all these false theories and ideas, frankly. You say, what's pantheism? Pantheism is this idea that God is in everything. You know, so you shouldn't cut a tree down because God's in the tree. You know, don't kill the cow. You know, you wonder why all these cows and monkeys and things run around India and places like that in Asia. They, they, they think God is in everything. Plus, they also believe in reincarnation. They're afraid of killing their great-grandma, who you know, could, could be in that whatever. So, so they, you know, they, they, they're just afraid of, because God is supposedly in everything. No, God's not. He's everywhere, Yes. God's not in the tree, he's not in the cow, he's not in the monkey. But God did create everything, and the Bible is clear here that God created it from nothing. This, this word bar is used exclusively, by the way, of the activity of God. Only God is the one who creates with this Hebrew word bara. Everywhere in the Bible you see the, the other word created in reference to man is a different word. Because man, you and I, we as people, cannot create from nothing. Yes, God has given us the ability to create in in the sense that we can take, say, the raw form of iron ore, take iron ore and from that smelt it into making other things with that. So we can take stuff and make things with it, but God's the one who made the iron ore. Do, Do you see the difference? God is the only one who makes from nothing. God didn't have anything when he made the iron ore. He just spoke it into existence. So you and I have the ability to fashion and and make things, uh, but we only do it with pre-existing materials. God is the only one who borrows. It borrows the Hebrew word for, for create there. So God created everything from nothing, but the Bible says that God created by speaking. That's interesting. In fact, if I, if I counted correctly, ten times here, ten times in Genesis 1, we read that God said. Verse 3, it says, God said. Verse 6, God said. Verse 9, God said. Verse 11, God said. Do you get the point? How did God create? By speaking it into existence. That's how God did it. He's a powerful God, isn't he? What are the components of creation? Genesis 1.1 gives us the components. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the universe really is a continuum of three components. The whole universe is, is composed of these three elements, if you will. Time, space, and matter. And you say, where did you get that from Genesis 1? I put it on the screen. Time is in the beginning. Space. God created the heavens. And matter... God created the earth. Everything is made of those three things. God is the author and the maker of it all. And, and by the way, you might be wondering, some people ask this, okay, in the beginning, when, when was that? Because Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning. Well, when was that? Well, if you've never read uh, James Usher, uh, I think it was the 1800s, if I remember correctly, James Usher tried to figure out when the beginning was. I mean, he took the Bible literally at face value. He went through all the genealogies, say Genesis 5 and 11, these places. 
and he, and he tried to go all the way back to the beginning. And he dated the beginning as 4004 B.C. Now, some of you might be shocked by that. I don't know. I don't know if every, you, every, every one of you in, in a... Uh, an early earth creationist? I don't know if you are, okay? I believe in a, in a young earth. I'm a young earth creationist. Uh, I, from what I've seen from James Usher, it seems to be a fairly good date. Now, the Jews, they actually, they're really close too, by the way. They're really close to James Usher's date. If I remember correctly, it was about 3,900 and something B.C. So they're not far off. That's the dates they come up with the beginning. So you can see by those dates, we're, we're only what? Approximately 6,000 years old. This earth and you and everybody in it is, everything in it is only about 6,000 years old. It's not very old. Anyway, that's another subject. But uh, we see the three components of creation, time, space, matter. We see it all in the very first verse. Isn't that interesting? What did God do? What did God do? Well, first of all, I'm going to skip over all the first five days of creation, they're all very interesting. We read those things earlier. We see God taking the void and filling it. That's essentially what's going on. In the first three days, he's he's taking nothing and putting something there. And then the last three days, he's filling uh, what he's done. But, the climax of God's creation is actually found in verses 26 and 27. We see that God created humans. God is the one who created humans. We did not evolve. Look at verse 26. By the way, notice the pronouns. Uh, again, if you don't know what a pronoun is, a pronoun is it's words like I, you, me, he, she, it. Okay, Those are all pronouns. Okay, Notice the pronouns here. They're all talking about God, and they're in the plural. They are plural pronouns. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. Now, there's three marks of mankind that appear in those two verses. Okay? Three marks that I just want to point out to you. Coming from this idea here in these two verses that God created human beings. Number one, we see humanity's greatness here. You, you and I are great, not because in and of ourselves, but because we are made in God's image, it says. We are made in God's image. Now, it's not an exact replica, okay? Please understand that. Because John 4.24 says that God is spirit. You and I are not spirit, okay? So, so obviously we're not exactly the same. And if you're wondering, well, what, what, what is it that makes us in God's image? What, how are we made in his likeness? Well, God's image in us includes at least these things. Number one, the rational, the moral, the spiritual, the verbal, and the physical. At least those five things. I'll repeat those. The rational, moral, spiritual, verbal, and physical. That is at least the five things that make up uh, God's image in us. But we have a problem. Because in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, didn't they? Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3. So when man sinned, we 
well, we lost part of that image, if you will. And, and so if you ask the question, well, did we lose the image of God in Genesis 3? The answer is yes and no. You say, Pastor Scott, can't you just answer the question, you know, you know, clearly here, please? Yes and no. That's, I mean, that's not a good answer. Well, yes, we still maintain part of the image, but no, we lost part of the image, shall we say. It, or in other words, it was contaminated. It was contaminated. So we still retain part of God's image, but that image is flawed from the, the original way that God made it. Does that make sense? I'll explain that a bit further. But what does this image mean to you and me? Okay, you'd say, that's all, you know, that's great. You know, verse 26 and 27 says I'm made in God's image, but what does that mean for me? Well, it means that, number one, I know who I am. That is answering one of those fundamental questions, who am I? Who are you? Well, you're made in God's image. Is everybody made in God's image? Yes, everyone. Everybody's made in God's image. So the, the crucial questions that modern man faces and, quite frankly, can't answer because they're not looking in the Bible are answered here. Who am I? Where did I come from? Who am I? Well, I'm made in God's image. Where did I come from? I come from God. God is the creator. And so those who believe in evolution have lost their unique identity. <clears throat> they believe they're just a part of a of an ocean of atoms. <laughs> and when you're part of an ocean of atoms, it, does that make you feel special? Does, does that give you any uniqueness when you're just a, a part of an ocean of atoms? No, of course not. But Christians, we don't have this problem. Those who are Bible-believing Christians don't have this issue. Christians know who they are. They know where they've come from. And you know what that means? I can know where why I'm here and where I'm going. Because I know where I've come from. I know who I am. I know I have a reason for my existence now. It gives me purpose in this life now. And I know where I'm going in the future. Do you see how this has an effect upon the present and the future? I hope you do. Well, what does this image mean to you and me? It means that, number not only does it mean that I know who I am and you know who you are, but it also means I know who you are. I know who I am, but I also know who you are. You are a creature made in God's image, and because of that, you possess value and potential. It means that, well, how does this flesh itself out in our daily lives? It means, well, number one, you and I shouldn't have any prejudice. You and I shouldn't have prejudice against other races races and other people of various skin colors, people of various social standing, because we're all made in God's image. Whether you're Asian, Hispanic, European, or, or Caucasian, or black, or you know whatever you want to call yourself, we all have value. We shouldn't have prejudice. shouldn't be any racism, particularly amongst Christians. If you believe in this truth, that we are great because God created us in His image. It should get rid of all prejudice. It should. Christians respect their fellow men because they are made in God's image. That's why I have respect for you. That's why you should respect me and everybody else. 
What does this mean practically? It means, well, there's, there's two atrocities that happen in our universe that should end if this truth was totally understood by everybody. Number one, that we're not going to murder each other with our words. James, I think, chapter 4, talks about the power of your tongue. Your tongue is very powerful. And, and you, can, you can slay people with your tongue. Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful uh, you know, about your, your tongue and the use of your words. You can murder people with, with your anger. So, we're not going to murder people with our words, and neither are we going to murder people with weapons. If we understand the truth we are made in God's image, we're not going to, going to, we're not going to go around just you know, killing people for no reason. Because that, that person is made in God's image. Well, the greatness of humanity is found in the fact that our nature reflects the nature of our Maker. But we're faced with the tragedy, we have already mentioned, that the tragedy is that we are alienated from God. We are alienated from the Creator. Why? Because of our sin. That's what Genesis 3 points out. So we've already talked about God's image, what it is, that God's image is rational. But fallen men have become irrational, haven't they? Romans 1 makes that quite clear, right? Romans 1 talks about because of sin, people do all sorts of weird things unnatural, irrational things. Uh, God's image is moral, but fallen men have become immoral, haven't they? God's image is spiritual, but fallen men have become carnal or material. God's image is verbal, but fallen men have become corrupt in their speech. God's image is physical, but fallen men have become profane. And so while God's image remains in us, as you can see, that image is corrupted a bit like having a corrupted file on your computer, on your hard drive. You might have some file on your hard drive or your computer. You know, maybe at one point it was, it was good and it was all working really well, but somehow that file on your computer becomes corrupted and, and it just doesn't, it doesn't work the same, does it? Well, we have hard drives that have become corrupted. They don't work the same. And so God's image remains in us, yes, but it's corrupted, and so... The hope, you say, well, what hope is there? (laughs) There is a hope. There's a hope of restoration, just like a computer expert can sometimes sometimes come in and take that corrupted file on your hard drive and and fix your computer, can somehow restore it sometimes. Well, God is the the greatest IT person you can ever imagine. He can restore the unrestorable. So where the Bible teaches this truth that We're taught that we can become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 says. Uh, We can become a a new humanity and and receive a new mind, Colossians 3 says. So while we have been corrupted, we can be made new. Well, there's a second mark that we see here in these two verses. First of all, we saw humanity's greatness. Number two, we see humanity's government Verse 26 says, God, God talking about the Trinity, he's using these plural pronouns here, us, we. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice the next phrase in your Bible. You see humanity's government there. Let them have dominion. Let them. That's you, you and me. 
us have dominion. Do you understand what God is saying here? God is saying that, that we are to govern the fish and the birds and the animals. We are to govern the plants of this planet. Those things are subordinate to us. <clears throat> well, sadly, there are people who worship God's creation, don't they? And God's creation is superior to human beings. I like to call them tree huggers or the animal rights activists or whatever, whatever name you want to give to those people who worship God's creation and sometimes put those things above man. I mean, some of those, those same people who, you know, they'll spend millions of dollars to save a few beached whales go and kill babies through abortion. Does, does that make any sense? That, that's, that's totally irrational. That, that's showing you how the, the image, God's image has been corrupted. God cares far more about a baby than a hundred beached whales. That's insane. So all, all these things are, are, are subordinate to us. Our rule, by the way, is not based on our strength. I mean, the reality is, think about it. Are you stronger than an elephant? Do you have more strength than a blue whale? No, of course not. Those are just two examples of God's creation. We are, strength-wise, we're not as strong as those things. So our, the, their subordination is not based upon strength, necessarily. You say, well, then what is the subordination based upon? Based upon the Creator's rule here. The Creator is the one who declared that we are to have dominion over the, the fish and the birds and the animals. So our dominion is based on the fact that we are greater than the rest of God's creation. What does this mean for us? It means that our dominion, or I should say our dominion means that we are to be responsible caretakers of God's planet. It's not ours. This planet's not ours. Your house is not yours. Your car is not yours. Everything you possess does not belong to you. It's God's. So the trees, the animals, everything on this planet belongs to God, and God has made you a caretaker, and you're to be responsible. Okay, please understand, I'm not an environmentalist. Okay, I'm, I'm not going there. But at the same time, I think we need to be careful with what God has given us to us. You know, we, we shouldn't just go out and try to make all the animals extinct and destroy the oceans and cut down all the trees. And I'm not saying we should do that. We should use those things wisely. That's what God, the dominion here that, that God has given to us, it comes with a responsibility. Why did God give us dominion? Well, I, I, first of all, I think it's a gift of God. It's a gift of God to us. It was designed to enable us to enjoy the environment fully and responsibly. It means that if you need to cut a tree down to have some warmth in your house, then do so. If you need to go catch a fish so you can have some food, do so. If you need to plant a garden and when it's time you, you, know, you, you take your vegetables off that garden to eat, then do so. God has given you dominion. And if I want to go shoot a deer, that's okay. God's given me dominion to go eat a deer. Or if you want to go to the grocery store and eat your pork or mince or whatever, God has given you dominion over those things. It's, it's rightful for you to eat those things. There's a third mark mentioned here. In verse 27, we see humanity's gender. 
The third mark of humanity is found in verse 27. We see that God made male and female. Now, there's jokes about this. Uh, Somebody said it this way. Notice God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Right? You've heard that joke? Well, maybe you haven't heard that joke. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. He didn't make two males, and he didn't make two lesbians. He purposely made us male and female. Praise God for that. I love females. Well, sorry, I love one female. Let me rephrase that. Uh, <clears throat> boy, I need to be really careful there. And, and by the way, God did not make Eve and Andrea. It was Adam and Eve, male and female. That's the way God made it. And so anything that goes against the original creation is an ab- something abnormal. You say, who gets to decide what's normal? God does. God's the one who decides what's normal. God made male and female. Anyway, I I can get really passionate about that one, but let's move on. Not only did God create human beings, but we also see that God crowns human beings. Not not with a literal crown, but look look what God gives. There's several privileges and things mentioned here, starting in verse 28. God blessed them. Who's the them? The male and female, Adam and Eve. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Let me just mention three points from those verses. There's three blessings that God has given to all humanity. All humanity gets to share these blessings. Number one, there's a posterity mentioned here. Because look what God said in verse 28. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, he wasn't just talking about growing fruit trees here. (laughs) Okay? God's talking about children, right? Having children and grandchildren here. There's a posterity that God has blessed. He blessed Adam and Eve with, and he may have blessed you with as well. Number two, there's a position. God has given us position over his creation. He says in verse 28, subdue it. So not only does he give it to us, But he says, now you subdue this creation I've given to you. And then in verses 29 and 30, God gives us the provision of all things for us as food. I don't know about you, but I love being a carnivore. Do you know what I mean by a carnivore? A person who eats meat? I I know you South Africans, you joke about this all the time. You know, you know, you, how how do you say that? I've, I've heard you South Africans joke about you know, even um, even other stuff is meat to you guys, but or uh, or vegetables. You know, you, your your favorite vegetable is, is mince, or you make jokes like that. But isn't it great that we can? Why why can we enjoy a good ribeye steak or a Scotch fillet? Why can we go and enjoy a you know a nice piece of snapper or a piece of venison or uh, Barbecued pork ribs. Oh, yummy. Why can we enjoy those things? 
because God has given those things to us as provision. Now, there might be some people who are vegetarian. You think so? I'm sure I'm, I'm not helping you out there. I'm almost done, okay. Some people are vegetarians, and that's up to them. But if they try to use the Bible to prove they ought to be a vegetarian, they're barking up the wrong tree. Okay, The Bible doesn't prove that you are to be a vegetarian. God says the fish, the birds of the air, the animals, those things were to subdue, and God has given them as a provision for food. So it's perfectly okay for you to go kill something, uh, an animal, or to go to the grocery store. Sorry, I need to really be specific here, don't I? God hasn't given you the right to go and kill people. But, but animals, yes. They're not made in God's image. People are. But what did God think about his creation? There's three insights drawn from the passage here, okay? Three insights that are drawn from this passage that answer the question, what did God think about his creation? Number one, well, look at verse 31. Verse 31 answers the question. God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. What did God think about his creation? God thought it was very good. He thought it was very good. This means at this point of earth's history, the whole earth was in complete harmony with God, and it was at total peace with itself until Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> well, Genesis 3, well, sin enters the world, and then, well, then it's chaos, right? Animals fighting one another, you know, animals afraid of human beings, and the list goes on and on with all the problems that entered the world. And so sadly, we've, we've never known a world like this. The world was only like that in chapter 1 and 2. Praise God, if you know what Revelation, how the book of Revelation ends, you know that this day is coming again. When God creates a new heaven and a new earth, it is coming. But until the end of the book of Revelation, we have to deal with, with no peace, well, little peace, and no harmony. <clears throat> Number two, what else did God think about his creation? Well, that's found in chapters 2. God thought it was complete. God thought his creation was complete. Look what he says in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work. So in verse 1, it says, we're finished. Verse 2, it says, God ended. Obviously, God thought his creation was complete. Otherwise, he would have kept going, right? Now, some people have a problem with this. They, they have a hard time taking, you know, six days, 24-hour days, literally. They really have a hard time with this. And they, they say, well, how can God create everything in the universe in six 24-hour days? And anybody who asks that question, I ask a question back to them, and I say, what took God so long? Because God, God could have done it within one second. He could have created the whole universe in one second. So then why did he take six days? Because he wanted to, is the first answer. The, the second answer is, he set up the whole week for us. God is the one who has declared time for us. It's seven days. He says, six days you work, one day you rest. So, God thought it was complete, obviously, but uh, what else did God think about his creation? We see that God is content with his creation here. Look what he says in verse 2. It says, at the end of verse 2, he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. He rested. <clears throat> Why did he rest? 
It's because he was really tired after six days of working, right? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. God, God never gets tired. We just sang about that in Psalm 121, right? The God who never slumbers, never sleeps, he never gets tired. He doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to breathe. He doesn't need to drink. He doesn't need anything because he's a self-existent one. He of course he wasn't tired. All he did was speak it into existence. Certainly didn't get tired from that. So why, why did he rest? Well, number one, he was setting an example for us that we ought to rest one day out of the seven. By the way, what, what does it mean here? He was finished. He, he was content. The word rested means cessation from work. He didn't work on day seven. In other words, God stopped his work because it was complete. He was content. There was nothing else that he wanted to do. He made it perfect. To him, it was good. The only other thing that he mentions wasn't good, which is interesting. This is another subject. But when you come to the truth, you see that Adam was alone. Adam, remember, God gave Adam the responsibility to name all the animals. So he's bringing by Mr. and Mrs. Lion. And Adam says, I call you Lion. Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, I call you Elephant. So Adam's naming all these things, and he's seeing Mr. and Mrs. He keeps seeing Mr. and Mrs. go by him, and he's naming them all. And he starts thinking, now, wait a minute. Um, I'm here all by myself. Uh, there's something wrong with this picture. And it was at that point that God said, it's not good for man to be alone. So all of, of, of all of God's creation, that's the only thing that God said, okay, my creation isn't quite complete. But unlike the rest of God's creation, where he creates from nothing, was Eve created from nothing? No, it's different, isn't it? Eve's special. Amongst all of God's creation, Eve is very special because God used a part of Adam to make his wife, didn't he? But that's the only thing in all of God's creation where God said, no, you know, you know what, there's something not, not right here. Of course, God didn't make a mistake. We believe God doesn't make mistakes. So, so God obviously had that planned. There's, there's a lesson in that, which maybe we can look at later. But what's the point of this? What is the point of all this? Remember the great philosophical questions? Who are you? Where did you come from? You need to know the answers to those questions. Genesis 1 and 2 answer those questions clearly for us. And so when we come to the Bible, we must have faith. God says without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Without faith, it's impossible to go to heaven. By faith, you're saved through faith in Christ alone. That's how you're saved. So the evolutionists, they have faith, but their faith is a different object. What's your faith in? My friend, what is your faith in? What is the object of your faith? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your good works? Are you trusting in science? Are you trusting in something else? What is the object of your faith? We all have faith in something. For the evolutionists, their faith is in science and themselves and humanism and other things like that. But uh, my friend, I, I, 
I urge you and beg of you to, to look deep inside yourself, into your heart, to ask yourself, what is your faith in? Your faith must be in the Creator. By the way, Jesus Christ is the Creator. So He's the Creator. He's the Judge. He's the Savior. He's all those things. Is your faith in Him and only in Him? And by the way, it can't be Jesus plus something else either. It can't be Jesus plus good works. Can't be Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus church membership, Jesus plus whatever. It has to be Jesus and Jesus alone. So, my friend, if you've never put your faith in Jesus alone, today the Bible says this is the day of salvation. For you, my Christian friend, again, I'll ask the same question What is the object of your faith? What are you trusting in? If, if you're saved, that means you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus alone for salvation. But what about the bill that's due next week? What, what's the object of your faith? What about your, your physical health? What is the object of your faith for your physical health? Uh, may, maybe there's something you're praying about, okay? You, you have some need in your life that you're praying about. What is the object of your faith? We all have an object of faith. We're trusting in something. Well, what is it? Okay? We as Christians, if we've put our faith in Jesus alone for something of great importance like eternal life, why can't we trust him for the bill that's due next week? Or our husband who's halfway around the world? Or some physical health issue? Why can't we trust him for that as well? We can. So do it. (laughs) Do it. He's a great God. He's a good God. And he's worthy of our praise and our worship and our trust. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful you have told us who we are and where we've come from. Father, forgive us because we don't always trust in you as we should. Sometimes we have idols of our hearts and things that other things we're trusting in. Maybe, maybe we're trusting in ourselves or science or our good works or some other thing. Father, help us not to do that. Show us our sin in that way. Reveal that sin to us so that we can confess it and forsake it. May we be people who are totally devoted to you. May our adoration be directed totally to you. May our worship be you. May our love, uh, our love for you be all-encompassing in all areas of our life. Father, may this truth of the past have the effect upon our present life and our future life that you would desire it to be. May we have a confidence in and know why we are here on this planet and where we're going. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.